Hey, Steminists, it's Emlyn Gremlin here with a quick announcement. You are currently listening to an older episode of Stem Fatal, one in which we had not quite figured out how to turn the microphone on. So if the audio quality bothers you, I urge you to skip ahead to episode 17, where we are oh so crisp and oh so clean. That wasn't supposed to rhyme, but it just worked out that way. Okay, here's the app. By circa 1820, she ran a fossil store. She put the bones together for the and science was the province of men of noble birth But I take Marianne over the Welcome back! Hey! This is Stem Fatal, your women in science history podcast. I am Emlyn like Gremlin. And I'm Emma Dilemma. And uh, we're your Steminists for the week. <laughs> So, what are, what are we doing? Yeah. Emlyn. Yes. <laughs> you have chickens. Oh, God. Yeah? Yes, I do. Um, have you ever thought what you could discover by looking at their eggs? Their eggs still in them? Or, like, their, like, um, developmental... More, like, developmental, but I'm just asking you a weird question. Uh. <laughs> I know that you, that, uh, the chicken eggs, if you look inside the chickens, they form, like, a spiral of, like, smaller and, incrementally smaller and smaller eggs, so it's, like, a spiral of, yeah, little eggs. That's cool. I didn't know that, actually. Fun fact. That's what I'm bringing to the Um, table today. How about after they lay their eggs? Then I eat them. Then you eat them. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. (laughs) I don't, there's no men in my farm. So there's no, oh, yeah, they're, not, yeah. they're not fertile eggs. I don't feel bad. Okay, so I could ask you the classic question, <laughs> which <laughs> oh, came no. first, the chicken or the egg? But I have a new variation, or okay. do you have an answer to that question? Uh, in, in my experience, I did get the chickens first, and then the eggs did come later. Right. Because but... I did not get them from an egg. I got them from my advisor. Also, hasn't this question been answered because it's the egg? Like, and eggs evolved before chickens ever evolved. Uh, (laughs) You tell me, Emma. I don't know. I think the egg came first. But here's a question slightly more pertinent to today's lady of interest. Okay. Intrigue of of science fame. Yes. Which came first? <laughs> this is so stupid. Oh no. Okay. Keep up. Which Keep came up. first? Chicken limbs or nerve cells in a chicken limb? <laughs> <laughs> so chicken wing or or like the nerves. The nervous system throughout a chicken wing. I'm going to say the nervous system. That's incorrect. Oh, okay. I didn't actually think there was yeah. an answer to that question. <laughs> well, it's also kind of not totally a good question. <laughs> we'll see. Okay, we'll see. We'll see. Okay. Well, okay. So something that you could discover uh, by looking at embryonic chickens uh-huh. <laughs> is uh, something called the nerve growth factor. Okay. Which I'll talk about. Don't worry. Okay. Um, and I was, was w- very worried. 
And it was discovered by Italian neurologist uh, Rita Levi Montalcini. Is that who we're talking about and today? And that's who we're talking okay. about today. Cool. Yes. Okay. An Italian. Yeah, she's super Italian, like wore Chanel number no. five every day, wore high heels every day, made all of her own beautiful clothing. I didn't realize that wearing Chanel number no. five was an Italian. Oh, I guess I just think of like someone very regal. Okay. I don't know. Whatever. She was just fabulous. Okay, she was yeah. fabulous. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Yeah, let's cool. do it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Rita Levi Montalcini was born on April 22nd, 1909 in Turin, Italy. Have you ever been there? No, I've heard of it, but I've not been there. Yeah. Do you, north? South? I think it's in the north. Okay. Yeah. The, still no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been to Italy, so I wouldn't know, but yeah where it is, but I'm pretty sure given parts of the story later that it is in the north. Okay. And she was born to a Sephardic Jewish family. Okay. Which means that they, um, her family, like, descended from, uh, Spanish people. Gotcha. Basically. As opposed to Ashkenazi Jewish people, which are, like, German and an Austrian, maybe. So she and her twin sister, Paola, were the youngest of four children. Her parents were Adele Montalcini, a painter, and Adamo Levy, an electrical engineer and mathematician. Nice. Okay. In her teenage years, she considered becoming a writer, but after seeing a close family friend die of stomach cancer, (laughs) awkward, sorry, (laughs) she decided to attend the University of Turin Medical School. And her father was against this because was she that was the painter a woman. or was that a, the mathematician? The mathematician uh, engineer. Okay. Gotcha. But also, just yeah. at the time, he was like, "Oh, women shouldn't go to college." Gotcha. This was like 1920s, probably. Yeah, just well, about. Yeah. Yeah. Mid 20s. Okay. Um and he yeah so he discouraged all of his daughters from attending any university. Because he feared it would disrupt their potential lives as wives and mothers. Mm. Yes. And guess what? It did. But she lived (laughs) a very long, happy life, so who cares? (laughs) Um, But, yeah, so she remained steadfast in her want to go to med school. And he finally ended up supporting her. Um, Later on in life, she said... It was a very patriarchal society, and I simply resented from early childhood that women were reared in such a way that everything was decided by a man. Yeah. And she kind of just lived her whole life like that. That's awesome. Which is pretty dope. Yeah. Yeah. She's cool. Okay. What's her first name again? I already Rita. Rita. Yeah. R-I-T-A. It's now in my brain. Yeah. We're good. So while at the university, um... She met neurohistologist Giuseppe Levy. Okay. Not related to her, but same. So her last name is a hyphen Levy Montalcini. Uh-huh. And this is Giuseppe, Giuseppe Levy, different Levy. Gotcha. Okay. Good. Excellent. <laughs> Just, I'm sure they also had yeah. that conversation that was like, we're not related, are yeah, we? Yeah. I also just don't. I'll probably maybe say, like, Levy later, and uh-huh. it's not her. Okay. And it's not her She's husband. Rita. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay. Gotcha. 
Um, and he sparked her interest in the developing nervous system. So how nerves develop in embryos. <laughs> I assumed that this was going down a romance. They probably didn't no. have the conversation of if they were related, I was thinking. Oh. <laughs> Incest. So, okay. Uh, no, what? like... <laughs> I was thinking if they had the same last name, they would double check with each other to make sure they were not oh, related if they oh, were oh, interested oh. in each other. Right. But they probably didn't have that conversation if it was a advisor. Advising, yeah, no, or, no, no. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that anyway. would have been entirely inappropriate. Yeah. <laughs> okay, he was an outspoken anti-fascist, renowned for his alarming fits of rage. <laughs> Excellent. Um, she says, but he was also the man who introduced her to her first passion, which was the nervous system. And yeah, fascism was on the rise in Italy at that time. Yeah. Mussolini was like coming into power, basically. Il Duce. Okay. <laughs> what does that mean? The leader. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was his nickname. Gosh, I didn't realize. Okay, so. I thought, that, I thought it was. El Duce sounds like the sweet. Oh, yeah. I think it's... That would actually make sense, but... The sweet one. But he doesn't seem like the sweet one. He's not sweet. Yeah. The opposite, in fact. And what I read online was Il Duce meant... Oh, no. Il Dulce would be sweet. Oh, yes. Yeah, okay, okay. Okay, we're good. We're good. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't take one. Okay. So while working with Giuseppe, she mastered a technique that would be key to her own successes, and that was of silver staining nerve cells. So I didn't really look up how that works, but basically she could visualize nerve cells in things like a chicken embryo while it develops, and she could watch nerve cells grow during development, which is awesome. Yeah. Okay. With silver. Yeah, with silver. Like, maybe injecting it into... Yeah, that's where I just was like, this is too technical. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, she graduated summa cum laude, and at the same time, um, during her undergrad there, became familiar with two fellow students in the lab, um, Renato Del Becco, who went on to discover oncoviruses and get a Nobel Prize for that. which are viruses that can cause cancer. Gotcha. And Salvador Luria, who who studied bacteriophages and discovered that he, like, disproved Lamarckian theory. Okay. Yeah. Like, showing that genes don't evolve in response to natural selection. Mm -hmm. They're already there, like Darwin said. Okay. But basically, she met two people that later went on to win Nobel Prizes. Gotcha. And I think she worked with them somewhat here. Like, stayed in touch with them throughout yeah. her whole life. She graduated in 1936 and started working as uh, Giuseppe's assistant and receiving a specialization in, like, clinical work on the nervous system. Okay. However, her, her academic career in Italy was cut short by Benito Mussolini's 1938 Manifesto of Race, which basically introduced laws that did not allow Jewish people to attend academic and professional careers. Okay, yes. Yeah, Yeah. so this was kind of the start of Italy becoming not allied, I mean, allied with, not part of the allies. Yeah. (laughs) Becoming part of the Axis powers. Yeah. 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 
So Mussolini basically declared this manifesto in order to become closer to mm-hmm. Germany and to get on Hitler's side before, right before the war started. Uh-huh. Or right as the war was starting, I guess. Yeah. It was closely modeled on the Nazi Nuremberg laws. So. Great yeah. choice. So, yeah, this is all really interesting, her life during the war. Yeah. So, because she could no longer work at the university, I don't think her advisor could work at the university either. Giuseppe? Yeah. She went to live in Nor- in Turin with her family okay. in the Italian countryside. And I think at that point in Italy, there wasn't a lot of crackdown on, like, Jewish people and, like, finding them or mm-hmm. anything. They it just, was just couldn't like, do certain... Yeah, exactly. They weren't... They were prohibited from doing certain things. Yeah. But they weren't being fat. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So, and... Still not great. No. In her countryside... So, it's weird, though, because this sounds... What I'm about to tell you sounds, like, kind of nice. (laughs) (laughs) But there's a backdrop of... Yeah, of just, like, absolute horror and, like, monsters trying to ruin the world. Yeah. Um, During this time, she conducted experiments from a home lab in the Italian countryside. So, studying the growth of nerve fibers in chicken embryos, which were the basis of her entire career. Did she have a little chicken farm? Not quite. I'll get there, Okay. It's cute. Yeah. Well, some part of it is cute. Yeah. Well, yeah. A lot of it seems not great. I'm going to sidebar for, like, half a minute just to talk about development in embryos. So, when an egg is fertilized, it becomes an embryo. Yes. And it begins to divide. Yes. Like, cells begin to divide. And as an embryo gets older, some cells become... Or cells become more and more specialized... Like, at the earliest stages, they're capable of becoming any cell in the body. Mm-hmm. Like, an, it could become an eye cell or a muscle cell or a blood cell. As the embryo gets older, they become these cells, yeah. like, specialized into those. And she was interested in what causes some embryonic stem cells to turn into nerve cells. Okay. Yeah, it's like she wanted to know, like, what was causing cells to become nerve cells? What were the, like, triggers? and Yeah, like, what mm-hmm. were the triggers okay. involved? And chick embryos were great for studying development because you can cut a small window in an eggshell <laughs> and, like, actually watch them develop. Have you seen the YouTube video of them, like, put, like cracking it and putting it in, like, um, a saran so it's all clear? Yeah. Instead of an eggshell and then watching the whole Yeah, and you can do experiments where you um, put, like, coffee on an embryo and you can watch its heart start to beat faster. Or put alcohol and watch its heart beat slower. Oh. Like, we, I've taught labs where they, we have really? students do that. Oh, it's man. really cool. Yeah. So, yeah, she could, like, watch their development and their developmental stages were very clear because you can... They're pretty big, so you could visualize them easily. If I was allowed to have a rooster, I could do these too. Well, not as well, but yeah, I could put coffee. Yeah. Okay, so she was inspired by work of another nerve system researcher at Washington University in St. Louis. Woo-woo! Uh, yeah, St. Louis. <laughs> Wait, what's Nellie? St. Louis. I know. What Does he have like a... 
What's his catchphrase? Does he have a catchphrase? I'm sure he does. Um. Wait a minute now. Uh oh. That's what he does. He's oh, yeah. like, uh oh. <laughs> okay. Wow. Um, she was inspired by <laughs> another researcher there, Victor Hamburger. God, I love Best Nelly. name ever. <laughs> oh, I love Nelly too. Yeah. When I worked at a bakery we would, in St. Louis, we would start the morning out at 6 a.m. because we had to get there early and we would blast Nelly until we had customers. It was great. Oh, he's a gem. Yeah. Anyways, um, science. Yeah. Victor Hamburger didn't know how to do her method of staining with the silver. Mm-hmm. Um, So he could kind of watch nerve development, but not as well as she could. And she decided to repeat one of his experiments with her method. So here's her lab, which was in her bedroom. (laughs) She had an incubator, a microscope, and a regular supply of fertilized hen's eggs, and tiny scalpels and spatulas that she fashioned out of sewing needles. What? Like, truly dedicated. Oh, yeah. I don't know what I I would have done. I think I would have just, like, gone for walks or, like, I don't know (laughs) if I would have done something like this. Um, She would bicycle to neighboring farms to buy fertilized chicken eggs. I love it so much. Telling the farmers that the eggs were for her babies because they were more nutritious than unfertilized eggs. Oh, so she didn't want to tell them that she was doing science. Yeah. She just wanted to... Interesting. Yeah, I don't think she... I think she probably thought it would be weird yeah. to be like, I want to experiment on your, yeah, like, weird. fertilized eggs. Also, I'm doing this in my bedroom. <laughs> right, And yeah. I fashioned weird medical supplies out, out of, of needles, n- knitting needles. Yeah. I'm not crazy, though. Please yeah, give me these right. eggs. Like, just like... <laughs> A 20-year-old, something-year-old, or I guess at this point, 30-something-year-old woman biking along the Italian countryside in the middle of World War II looking for fertilized eggs (laughs) and telling them that they're, telling farmers it's for her babies. (laughs) That's sort of magical. Okay, so she repeated one of his experiments where he had removed developing wings, so they're called limb buds. Okay. And it's like, you can see in an embryo when limbs, like feet or wings are starting to form, uh-huh. they make like a lump where they are going to be. Yeah. So he had removed those from chick embryos to see whether the nerves would still grow towards that limb. Okay. So in a normal developing embryo, like nerves start developing in the spinal cord in the brain. Yeah. And then eventually the nerve network will grow out towards the limb. Yeah. And he was like, okay, if I remove the limb, does that network still grow towards it? And he couldn't tell because he could barely see the nerves. Gotcha. However, she could see them. um, And she saw that even if the limb wasn't there, they did start to proliferate towards the limb. But then died before reaching where it would be. Hmm. Interesting. So I don't know what I would think about that. Yeah. But she hypothesized that the limb produced a signal called a growth factor that stimulated the nerve cells to grow. Okay. 
like it produced some molecule that was sent to other nerve cells to tell them to grow Keep going. towards this mm-hmm. region, kind of. And I will say that she was right, but it took like 30 more years for <laughs> anyone to believe her. <laughs> yeah, as it goes. Yeah. Okay, in 1943, Mussolini was ousted. Italy's King Victor Emmanuel III announced that Italy was leaving the Axis powers and joining the Allied powers. And so Germany invaded northern Italy, where she was. Um, So at that time, Rita and her family fled to hide with friends in southern Italy, in Florence. Okay. Because Germany... So, yeah, the Italy's king, like, kind of secretly was like, we got to get rid of Mussolini. I uh-huh. Not, I don't want to expand Italy to Ethiopia and all these places they were trying to conquer under Mussolini's kind of weird reign. Mm-hmm. So he was like secretly talking to the U.S. and other Allied powers, got rid of Mussolini, who was allied with Germany. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then Germany was like, okay, if you're going to do that, we're going to invade you, which we have been sort of avoiding and like other people were avoiding it anyway yeah germany invades northern italy her family moves to florence okay and they're staying with friends they're hiding with friends basically and yeah that's probably very dangerous for them because before it didn't seem like italy was actively trying to find people who were jewish but yeah yeah it was bad but very soon after like the next year in 1944 the allied powers pushed the German invaders out of Florence, which is where they were. Okay. And she was hired, but the war was still going, um, but Germany was, you know, starting to lose on multiple fronts, kind of. Um, And she was hired as, Rita was hired as a medical doctor and assigned to a camp of war refugees who were brought to Florence by the hundreds from the north where the war was still raging. Mm Mm-hmm. So just, like, such a weird, intense time where she discovered nerve growth factor, which would go on to, like, become a major finding in all of biology. Yeah. It's just, like, I can't imagine focusing like that given what was going Mm -hmm. on there. And then she's pretty much front lines with sending people to her. So even though she wasn't allowed to publish in Italy because she was Jewish, Mm, mm -hmm. she somehow got secretly some publications out. Nice. Or maybe she was sending papers to colleagues, like, secretly. I'm not quite sure how this happened, but um, Victor Hamburger, whose um, paper she was trying to recreate, he read one of her papers and invited her to come work with him in St. Louis. And she did. Nice. Yes. Yeah. St. Louis. (laughs) And she spent, like, the um, rest of her career there and then eventually going back and forth between there and Italy. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Cool, right? Two places I love. Yeah. And St. Louis. (laughs) So different. No, they're very similar. I've never been to either. Both are great. Okay. In their own special ways. Um. Okay. So she moves to St. Louis. This is, she was only there for like a short, she was only supposed to be there for like six months or something. Um, But she just, yeah, like I said, she ended up staying there for like 30 years. And one of Hamburger's grad students at the time, Elmer Bucher, 
he did a project where he grafted a lump of a growing mouse tumor onto a chick embryo. What is grafting? It's like, uh, he just put it on there. That's what I think. <laughs> okay, it just has a fancy name. <laughs> like, grafting with crops, you, like, grow half a tree, and then you... Like, kind of cut, cut it? And... Yeah, you cut it, and okay. you put another tree onto those developing stem cells, yeah. and they just join together. Okay. I don't know what it technically means, okay. though. Yeah. yeah. People can tell us if it's wrong. He put a lump of growing... <laughs> mouse tumor onto a chick embryo and found that nerve fibers grew and invaded the tumor mass. Oh. Yeah. And he thought it was because the tumor had um, a lot of surface area. However, Rita was convinced it was not a surface area thing, but that the transplanted tumor tissue was releasing that same factor she had hypothesized before that yeah, that would stimulate the growth of nerve fibers. That makes sense. But, like, she didn't... Had, like, had no, no evidence that that was actually yeah. a thing? She had no evidence there was any molecule, like, being sent from one cell to another cell. Yeah. She was just like, these cells are communicating through this factor that was kind of, like, theoretical at that point. So, she was convinced. But, no, still, she needed more evidence mm-hmm. to convince others. So here's what she did. She put um, two live tumor-riddled white mice into her handbag and boarded a plane to Rio de Janeiro. What? (laughs) I don't know, like, how this... She just was so passionate that, like, she couldn't stop until she solved this problem. She would do anything. And Rio had the solution? (laughs) Yeah. Another... um, Some former students from Giuseppe's lab... Okay. uh, Giuseppe Levy were in Rio running a big tissue culture facility. So she took these tumored rats in her, or tumored mice in her purse. So cool. Okay. There she learned to culture isolated ganglia. And ganglia are like groups of nerves. Yeah. Okay. And she grew them close to pieces of a mouse tumor. And she could see that after 24 hours of culturing... There were, like, halos of nerve fibers growing from the ganglia like suns. And she would, like, draw pretty pictures of them. Very cool. That's cool. And the highest density was next to the tumor. Okay. Then she... So she did that for a while. She was convinced. Still other people weren't convinced. Um, But she returned to St. Louis. And at that point... With the mice? Or... Just with the knowledge. I think the mice were long gone if they were that tumored. (laughs) I don't know what year this is either exactly. Maybe a couple, a year later. Okay. At that point, Hamburger had taken on a new student, a new PhD student, Stanley Cohen. And Stanley and Rita worked together for six years trying to identify the factor that was released by the tumor. They wanted, they were determined to provide the scientific community with solid chemical evidence that this factor was real. But skepticism only increased when Cohen and Rita, when Stanley and Rita proposed that snake venom and salivary glands um, also promoted profuse nerve growth. So they like exposed 
um, ganglia to venom and to salivary glands, and they saw the same growth that they would see from the tumors. Weird. And venom is actually homologous to salivary glands, like venom glands in snakes. Okay. Yeah. So that, yeah. But basically, like, they just were like, oh, all of these tissues produce this factor that cause nerves to grow. But there still wasn't really, like, a chemical they could pinpoint. Okay. Because they were kind of diverse, like a tumor versus a venom gland. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to pinpoint what is in common between those. Yeah. They thought that the venom would actually destroy nerves because venom, like, kind of is bad for DNA or something. I don't know. Or, yeah. Well, some venom is... It's like a neurotoxin. Yeah, right. Like, they'll block nerves from firing. Yeah. So, yeah, for many scientists, it required too great a leap of the imagination to believe in this factor, which was supposed to diffuse from one tissue and then affect specific processes in another. And a protein chemist, Ralph Bradshaw, that ended up working with them, says... Uh, You have to remember that such a mode of biological action was not accepted in those days. Rita was saying it was in tumors, venom, as well as many normal tissues, and people just didn't believe it was serious biology. Yeah. And then, however, a few more people started to believe them when Stanley discovered a different factor called the epidermal growth factor, like another... Factor that they saw causing growth in the epidermis, which is like skin, sort of. And then they both developed in 1959 an anti-serum that abolished growth that they would normally see. So if they applied it to the plates, the tissue, the nerve tissue wouldn't grow. So they were able to make an anti-serum without quite knowing what the... Yeah. Growth factor was? Yeah, or what, like, the protein chemistry was, really. That's crazy. Yeah, so it's still... More and more people were beginning to believe them. Yeah, they were getting little bits of the hard evidence that you would need. I didn't... I'm not sure, like, what people thought was going on if their hypotheses were wrong. Like, I don't know what people thought it would be besides that. Yeah. Because that's all I really read was that it is that. Yeah. But, I don't know. People were just skeptical, I guess. But uh, in 1962, like, uh, she was pretty famous. Like, people respected her in Italy as a scientist. And she became, by this point, she was a full professor at WashU. Okay. And in 1962, she became the director of an institute of cell biology in Italy and started splitting her time half and half. Gotcha. She wanted to go back to Rome. Yeah, who, who doesn't? Yeah. And then the last remaining pockets of skepticism in the scientific community dissolved when Ralph Bradshaw, the protein chemist, together with Ruth Angeletti, which was her Rita's only PhD student ever. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, they determined the structure of the protein in 1971. Gotcha. Finally. Nice. Which was like 30 years after she discovered it. Science takes so long. I know. <laughs> 
And she was working hard, like, yeah. this whole time. Well, I'm sure the technology to be even able to yeah. just wasn't there. And uh, Rita didn't put her name on the paper. Why? Just, I don't know. I think she was just being nice. Uh. Like, you guys did this. It's yours. Though, there are things later where she, like, didn't credit other people for things. Okay. It's kind of funny. Okay. Or here's a funny story. When the study of growth factors finally became respectable and other scientists flooded into the area, rather than being gratified, uh, Rita was annoyed by the invasion of what she saw as her territory. And so at meetings, she had a tendency to educate audiences on the order in which discoveries had been made. Mm -hmm. And uh, Lloyd Green, a scientist in her field, says after one of his own talks... Um, hers was the first hand raise. And, quote, it was not a question, but a long statement about <laughs> neural growth factor and its history. As she spoke, she little by little made her way to the stage <laughs> and the podium. And the next thing I knew, she was next to me at the microphone still asking her question. <laughs> I know some professors almost like that. Yeah, right? <laughs> And he was like, there wasn't anything I could do except just, like, let her finish. Yeah. <laughs> I love when people... Like, the moxie. Moxie, like, the courage. Oh. She, yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I love when people say they have a question and then it's just because they want to tell you something. Yeah. Like, that's not, a, that's not a question. Or, like, your talk is on, like, butterflies and then someone raises a question and they're like oh well this same thing occurs in bacteria and then go on and on about bacteria yeah. or something yeah yeah i don't know <laughs> so yeah so finally she everyone like believed her at this point and everyone was getting in on the neural growth factor thing because it was pretty amazing to figure out this molecule that influenced like growth of nerve cells. Yeah. Yeah. Super cool. So she retired from WashU in 1977, but continued her scientific work until her death. In 1986, she was at home in Rome reading Agatha Christie's Evil Under the Sun when the Nobel Committee called to tell her she had she and Stanley Cohen had won the prize. Oh, nice. For their work. And she says, I was happy about it, but I wanted much more to know the end of the story. The Agatha Christie story. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but I think she was joking. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, many in Italy viewed her as a national treasure for her achievements, personality, energy, and eloquence. She took it on herself to work at all levels to improve the state of Italian science. A socialist by lifelong conviction... She became good friends with Romano Prodi, who had been prime minister in two left-center governments. Okay. And she was made senator for life in 2001. What does that mean? Italy can have senators for life, five at a time. So it's kind of like our Supreme Court. Yeah. But... Oh, yeah, I didn't even think about that. It is like that. Okay. Yeah. But just but... appointed. What and do they do? I don't know, but she sh showed up for every vote. All right. Support him in all of his crazy socialist things, which not all socialist things are crazy, but like some are. Yeah. And, yeah. 
In 2002, she founded the European Brain Research Institute, a nonprofit international research facility fully devoted to studies in neuroscience. And she championed. So she's like 95 when she does this? She. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, she lived a very long time. Yeah. She um, started the Rita Levy Montalcini Foundation, which supported education for thousands of African women. Oh. And she um, published 21 popular books. <laughs> oh, my God. So prolific. Okay. <laughs> On her 100th birthday, she said, I'm not afraid of death. I am privileged to have been able to work for so long. If I die tomorrow or in a year, it is the same. It is the message you leave behind you that counts and the young scientists who carry on your work. That's so great. Yeah. And um, she died... At home in Rome, December 2012, at the age of 103. Oh, my God. Yeah. Full life. Okay. And then this is just sort of... I didn't talk a ton about the neural growth factor just because, like, I don't know that much about it. Yeah. But this is what she says were the consequences of her discovery for developmental biology. Okay. She said that it demonstrated that protein factors which are released by all cells in an organism, play an essential role in the development of every system. Okay. And it found unhoped-for possibilities of clinical application to a ton of different conditions, like mostly for neurodegenerative diseases. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. That's very cool. Like Alzheimer's, even disorders like HIV and autoimmune disorders, knowing about neural growth factor has helped immensely in those. And she received many awards throughout her lifetime. That's basically it. I love it. Yeah. So cool. I know. She's Go Rita. Awesome. I yeah. can't believe she lives so long. Yeah, I don't want to live that long. Yeah. If you're, like, in good shape. Yeah. It seemed like she was. She wore, like, high heels till the day she died. Yes. Like, always made up in very, like, elegant looking. Yeah. It's like my great Aunt Esther. She's 104. And does she still get up at, like, 5 a.m. and put on lipstick? Uh, I don't think she does that. (laughs) But her calendar is always booked. Wow. Yeah. You have to, like, get penciled in to see her. She's a very popular lady. (laughs) Yeah. That's awesome. Nice. Yay. Should we take a break? Yeah. Yeah. All right. This is our uh, next section, the women who work. Uh, Women in science making history today. Badass ladies. Yeah. And I've got two. Wait. Speaking of women who work, did you see Rihanna's Met Gala outfit? No. She dressed up, she was wearing, like, a hat like the Pope wears. I saw Lito, Jared Leto. <laughs> oh, yeah. And he, like, dressed up as Jesus, but, like, like yeah. Jesus, I'm mad at you. This is, <laughs> like, whatever that would mean. Jesus, like, Jesus, but, like, you. with a weird... Yeah, I saw that, too. Yeah. It was disturbing. Yeah. No, Rihanna looked awesome. Okay, with a Pope hat? Yeah, and, nice. like, a huge cape that was all beaded by hand, I think. Man. It was beautiful. But also, like, I don't think I could pull that off. <laughs> no, you have to be a certain level to dress up as the Pope. Yeah. 
And do it. And have, like, fabulously. a lot of boob and stuff. Yeah. 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 It was awesome. Yeah. Anyway. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I've got two this week. One I'm going to attempt to explain real quickly, but I don't know how well it's going to go. All right. And the second one is right up your alley. Yes. So whatever bad happens with the first part, we'll make up in the second part. Sweet. Okay. Dr. Robin Araujo, I think that's how you pronounce it, who's a researcher at the Queensland University of Technology. Um, She's a researcher in applied and computational mathematics. Had a paper out this week in Nature Communications. And this paper helps us understand, give a new level of understanding of cellular communication and cognition. And I mean cells, not like like telephones. Like factor. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Cells. Wow, it's relevant. Our cells exhibit something called perfect adaptation. Wow. Which, in other words, it's an extremely uh, complex network of proteins that are able to reset themselves after being exposed to a new stimulus. So the metaphor that she gave was, so our sense of smell also exhibits perfect adaptation. So if you go into a room, a really, really stinky room, Yes. It, you like as like soon as you get in there, locker room. a men's locker room, a men's bathroom. Yes. A place there are men. Right. <laughs> no, <laughs> there's other things. It's um, all at once. There's a very strong sense of smell that you have, but yeah. if you stay in that room for long enough, you kind of acclimate to it, and then you don't smell. Right. That's true. So, like with skunks, yeah. like you smell it, but if you're there for a long time, or oh, okay. So the idea is that you respond strong to the stimulus and then you kind of reach some type of level where you're, you're not responding anymore and that okay. allows you to respond to other new stimuli. Because if you were only smelling like stinky man sweat, right. if, there was a new, if a skunk came in, you wouldn't be able to smell it because you'd be... I don't want to smell any of it. <laughs> but yeah, I know yeah. what you mean. So this is kind of what our cells do. They become desensitized after a certain point to a stimulus. Right. And that allows us to kind of reach equilibrium and then respond to new stimuli. That's so cool. And so um, Robin Araujo studied all of the possible ways that a network can be constructed to perform this kind of perfected adaptation and found that, that a network has to satisfy some extremely rigid mathematical principles not going to get into those, but let's just say there's a few of them (laughs) and they're very strict in order to have this perfect adaptation. This mathematical work has implications for understanding how our cells work, uh, how drug addiction happens and about cancer drug resistance. Right. All of those things that you get desensitized to stimuli. That's so cool. So math teaching us about, drugs, uh, and, and cancer drug resistance. So, yeah, that's like, um, whenever you go away from your house for a while and then come back to it and you're like, does it always smell like this? Yeah, it does probably. (laughs) But I never realized that like, I get, yeah, I guess I had no idea that was like our cells becoming desensitized to something. Well, so the smell thing is like another example like of a, perfect adaptation, okay. and yeah. then our cells do a similar thing yeah, yeah. with oh, inputs, yeah, yeah, that aren't smells. I but, understand. Yeah. So that's, that's awesome. a that's the first one. 
And the paper is called The Topological Requirements for Robust Perfect Adaptation in Networks of Any Size. That's actually pretty understandable yeah. on some level. You know, like some papers are like the BCR234 yeah. receptor and the GR, and you're just like, come I don't on. Know. I don't know what any of those are. <laughs> okay, That's and, nice. Okay, That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I thought that was very interesting and seems like it has really strong implications for a lot of things. Yeah. And the second one is Chevy Weiner, who I think has gotten her master's, but this work was part of her master's. She was at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, and she published a paper this week as part of her master's thesis that showed that male brown widow spiders (gasps) prefer to mate with older, less fertile females. Whoa. So what I think they did was they gave the option to males of either mating with these, like, very young... They were still juvenile, but they can store sperm... Like, juvenile females that can store sperm, and then when they do develop, they have very high fitness. Yeah. Versus older women... So, are you trying to say that that I am old and less fertile? I'm just kidding. This is relevant to me! You work on spiders! Um, That's a joke. I know you said it because I work on spiders. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I'm trying to. I'm trying to. You're old, Emma. Oh, God. The the researchers thought that these male spiders would mate with the younger females. Yeah. And not just because they're more fertile than the older females, but also because the older females cannibalize the males fifty percent more. <laughs> so it seems like the males are picking a very bad strategy yeah. of mating with less fertile, more cannibalistic ladies. What's that about? And they don't know, um, but one of the things they hypothesized is that potentially the older females may be manipulating the males with some type of strong sexual signal yeah. that might, you know, have a, have evolved yeah. to be true to show quality of the female, but they might be somehow manipulating it so yeah. that the males think that they're getting a really fertile, non-gonna-eat-my-head-off yeah. female, and then mating with. That's amazing. Yeah. It's also possible that those female, older females are more aggressive and might guard their egg sacs more effectively than younger females. So I think that they have... I think that black widows guard their egg sacs. These are brown widows. Oh, shoot. That's right. But I don't know. I don't, I don't know how I would different they are. similar, yeah. but it's, I'm not sure. Yeah. It might not be. Wow, that's really yeah. weird. Yeah. So it seems like they're making a very cool, bad decision, nice. but yeah. <laughs> more, more work to be done. And that was a paper that was published in Animal Behavior. Aw, yeah. nice. So those are my uh, women who work shout-outs. Yeah, nice. Ow! Woo! <laughs> Okay. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> a werewolf shouting. This is our last in pod trivia. Yeah. We're going to move it to a Twitter f- forum type question. Yeah. Like, yes. We'll ask you guys trivia that will be answered in our podcast when you listen to it. Yes. And we'll, we'll shout out and to people who got it right early. Yeah. We'll say, nice job. Nice job. <laughs> Or Brown just, Widow, 52. <laughs> yeah, so then I'm not even going to ask you a new question. I'm just going to wrap up last okay. week. 
Last week we talked, and the week before we talked about the Royal Society. <laughs> I can't hear about what the Royal they? Society anymore. <laughs> Neither can I. I'm over it. Um, okay, part two of this long <laughs> uh, saga, I guess, at this point. No, was, I, love, I love it. In what year did a woman first receive a fellowship for the Royal Society? And for what? Because we learned previously that in 1905 or 1902, so the first one was nominated and they wouldn't give it to her because she was married. Yes. So. Our answer. <laughs> I could have just done that for too long. Okay. So in 1945. Yes. The society sent out a notice that they were finally accepting women. Everybody, we're doing this now. <laughs> um, and that year, two women were awarded fellowships. Kathleen Lonsdale for her work in crystallography. Nice. And uh, benzene, like she's looked at benzene rings or gotcha. something. And Marjorie uh, Stevenson for her work in microbiology and biochemistry. Nice. So congratulations, ladies. Yeah. Finally. <laughs> And that ends our Royal yeah. Society saga. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they'll come up again. But. No, they are now banned. We cannot talk about the Royal Society. Do you know when the Royal Society was founded, Evelyn? The society who must not be named is what it shall oh, be from gosh. now on. Okay. Um, yeah, so that's the end of our <laughs> trivia. Yeah. Okay, we have a new Twitter account. Oh, yeah, we, we have a Twitter account. It is Stem Fatal Pod. Please follow us. Yeah. Uh, we'll say when we're posting new episodes, we'll have links to our, like, sources and yeah. maybe some pictures and, uh-huh. yeah, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. And our, our theme song was Mary Annie by Artichoke. Oh, rate us on iTunes. Yeah. We want people to find us and learn about cool women in science. Yes. Yeah. And um, cool women in science and the men trying to keep them down. <laughs> And I think uh, yeah. on that note, uh, how you like stem apples? Bye. Bye. By circa 1820, she ran a fossil store. She put the bones together for